Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in the upstate of South Carolina in the Greenville, greater Greenville area. I am your host, Stan McCune, realtor right here in the upstate of South Carolina. You can reach me via my contact information in the show notes at any time. I can help you or your friends with any of your real estate or their real estate needs. And just a reminder, if you have not given this show a rating or a review, please do that. Please make sure that you subscribe. Uh, Make sure that you download episodes as well. If you've got space on your device, uh, I would appreciate that. That helps the show. And uh, yeah, anything that you can do to help the show in those ways, I would greatly appreciate that. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, winning the bidding war. Guess what? There are bidding wars all over the place. Uh, Pretty much every offer I'm submitting right now uh, for my buyer clients uh, has a bidding war tied to it. I, I Not all of them, but any home that is like new to the market pretty much has some sort of multiple offer type of situation. Um, and that's at every price point up to, I've shown up to a million dollars recently. Uh, that home had a bidding war on it. There is no price point that is exempt from bidding wars right now. And we've talked about that in the past. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the weeds on why that's the case. But I want to talk about not just uh, looking at the market and saying, okay, the market's crazy. Uh, sorry. But what can we do about it? Because I represent a lot of buyer clients. Um, I have more buyer clients in the pipeline, some that are, are moving here from out of state, whatever the case may be. And uh, we need to have strategies in place. We need to all be on the same page with how to win the bidding war. Because these bidding wars, they're not going away. And and I'll mention this, that bidding wars aren't new, okay? I bought my first house in 2011. That was like the kind of the bottom of the housing market in the, in the Greenville area. And even at that time, there were bidding wars that were happening. Even from 2008 to 2011, we would still see bidding wars when, when homes came on the market in good neighborhoods at competitive prices. People were still jumping on them, even though there were other homes that were that were languishing for 10, 11, 12 months or more. There would still be bidding wars on, on good homes at competitive prices uh, in, in good areas. And so uh, bidding wars are here to stay. Like that's never going to change, even during a... a buyer's market, there are still bidding wars. So we need to to prepare for them. And we need to think about how we can win them. And I've talked a little bit about this in other podcasts. This, this is going to overlap with a few other podcasts. Um, it's going to overlap with, uh, for instance, episode 26, when I talked about the, uh, the kind of the weird aspects of the uh, South Carolina Association Realtor contract form that most transactions in Greenville are done on. We're going to have some overlap with that, uh, but I'm going to try not to uh, overlap too much. That, we just kind of talked about the idiosyncrasies of the contract. This one, I'm going to be talking about uh, how we can manipulate those idiosyncrasies in order to help you to win uh, in a bidding war type of situation, in a multiple offer type of situation. And I guess I should clarify, because... Uh, sometimes there's realtor speech out there, and I, and I think probably 75%, maybe more, uh, people know what I mean when I say bidding war or multiple offer situation. But I, I want to clarify, because I had someone like say recently, bidding war? Is this an auction? Um, okay, 
bidding war that is realtor speak um and it, it you know you'll hear this on hgtv and whatnot as well so it's become more mainstream but the idea of a bidding war is basically when a home comes on the market and a bunch of people put offers in in at the same time it's not an auction but it almost plays out like an auction and oftentimes what ends up happening is uh the seller the listing agent will end up saying okay we are going to accept highest and best offer by this time period and so it's not like an auction like if you go to the the uh the greenville county foreclosure auction uh and you're making verbal bids it's more like a silent auction where everyone is kind of secretly putting in their bids and then the seller uh decides at the end what they're going to accept so that is what we're talking about when we're talking about a multiple offer situation or a bidding war. Now, in, in some cases, they won't ask for highest and best, and you just need to lead with your highest and best right away. Um, that's usually what I recommend to my clients anyway, and there are some ways to, to do that that protect you, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, but when you're crafting your offer, obviously, the price that you put on there is a big part of the strength of your offer. But that's not the only thing. There, there's really three components to an offer that is most important to the seller. And you could maybe add a fourth in there. Um, but the main three components are price, earnest money, and contingencies. Now, the fourth component that you could add in there is the closing date. Um, that is kind of it, That's kind of far beneath all the other ones. And so I'm just going to kind of gloss right over that. But if you have a competitive, uh, a quick closing date for a seller, for instance, let's say it's, an, it's a non-occupied home, it's a vacant home, and you can close on that home in two to three weeks, and, and there, by the way, if, if you're getting financing, you can still, it's, it's a little stressful, but you can close within three weeks if you have a good lender, and I can recommend good lenders. Um, if it's a cash deal, I mean, you can close in... Uh, I'd probably say 10 days. I mean, technically, you could probably get an attorney to do it quicker than that. But if you're buying cash, you can close in as quickly as 10 days. Um, so that is something that can be helpful. Now, for people that are living in the home, they might not want it to be that quick. Um, that's something I usually discuss with the uh, listing agent is, hey, we're flexible. If we have flexibility on the closing date, I'll say, hey, we're flexible when it comes to that closing date. What would your clients most want. And what I hear most of the time is that they're like, hey, you know, four weeks, 30 days, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, and that's kind of our standard contract period here in Greenville is roughly 30 to, to 45 days. Once it gets to 45 days, it starts to feel really long. Um, so, so I want to try to keep that to ideally no more than 30 to keep the offer looking attractive. But again, that one is far beneath all the others. Um, really, you, you just don't want that to be too long. You don't want your closing date to be way out there. Then it makes your offer look, look weird and unattractive because it's like, well, why would I wait 60 days? So as long as you're keeping that within 30 to 40 days, uh, your, your period that you're under contract until the closing date, that most of the time will be kind of a non-issue. But these other things, the price, the earnest money, the contingencies, all of those things together com combined make up 
a strong offer or a weak offer, depending on what direction you go with it. So let, let's talk about price. Price is, is obviously the most straightforward out of all of them, but um, it, it isn't necessarily straightforward, right? So let's say that you have a house that's listed for $300,000 and it gets multiple offers on it. Right now in this market, we're frequently seeing offers going 10, 15% above uh, what a house is listed for. Uh, so you might not feel comfortable leading with, well, I'm I'm just going to offer three hundred thirty thousand. Maybe you're willing to go up to three hundred thirty thousand dollars, but you're not willing. You, you don't really want to just start with that offer. Um, you, you do have another option. Another option, which we've talked about in the past, is to do an escalation clause. The way an escalation clause would work is you would say, I'm offering this amount, let's just say 305. Um, I'm offering a little bit more than what it's listed for, but I'm willing to go up to $330,000 and basically do 100,000, man, I'm struggling here, $1,000 more than the next competing highest net offer up to $330,000. And the, the seller then has to bring proof of the next competing uh, highest net offer. So let's say that that offer is 325000 Then basically the, the listing agent would have to provide that to me. And then we would say, okay, you're willing to, you said that you would go $1,000 more than the next competing offer. Uh, the next competing offer is three twenty-five. That doesn't exceed your maximum of three thirty. So now you're at three twenty-six. So then we would just redo the paperwork to say that now you're under contract for three twenty-six. Um, now I, I, I've had this question, I don't know how many times when I've discussed the, uh, escalation clause way of doing things. Um, well, how do we know that the listing agent isn't just making up, uh, an offer, isn't just providing you a fake offer from someone else? Um, well, we don't, the, the short answer is we don't, um, there are some aspects to, the offer that um, I can look at that can uh, kind of make me have confidence or not confidence in it as I'm reviewing it. But that being said, um, at the end of the day, the listing agent could be sneaky and crafty and fabricate an offer. But, But think about it this way, right? The listing agent is probably making roughly 3% of the contract price. Let's say that I figure out that the listing agent fabricated an, an offer in order to drive the price up from three, you know, from 305 to 326. That's a $21,000 difference. And what is 3% of I'm just doing this on my computer real quick here. Three percent of twenty-one thousand dollars is six hundred thirty dollars. So that's and that's before any commission splits that agent has uh, with his or her uh, brokerage. So that agent is trying to get another six hundred thirty dollars maximum. Okay, six hundred thirty dollars. So it's not much. The listing agent isn't getting a whole lot more by doing this crafty scheme of trying to drive up the price. But what the listing agent is doing, if they get caught, okay, if they made up an offer in order to drive the price up on the escalation clause and they got caught, they would lose their license. They would potentially have lawsuits. Um, they, they would be risking uh, their time 
in freedom, not out of jail. They would be risking their career, et cetera, et cetera. And that is not worth it for the majority of realtors out there. Okay. So um, I am in full confidence. And obviously, I'll still review uh, when they send that paperwork over and say, well, here is the next competing next uh, net offer, the highest competing net offer. I'll still review that and see if there's anything fishy about it. But I've never seen anything fishy in, in these situations before. Um, and and again, um, it would be unbelievable in my mind. It would be shocking if a realtor was willing to risk their career and their livelihood in order to make an extra few hundred dollars. Most of them are not going to do that. The vast majority of them are not going to do that. All right. So we got all that in the past. The escalation clause is an option for saying, okay, I'm willing to go up to this amount, but that's not where, where I'm going to lead with, okay? Now, it's worth mentioning that not all agents like the escalation clause, and it does muddy the water a little bit. Let's say that you get multiple uh, offers that have escalation clauses. By the way, these were really rare up until the past calendar year, and now they're becoming exceedingly common. We're seeing them more and more often. Um, so, uh, if you get multiple offers with escalation clauses, it gets, it gets really tricky, uh, for the seller and, and it, it might, um, I'm not even going to get into the weeds on that, but it might be a situation where it's like, well, which offer trumps the other? Um, and so, uh, some listing agents in the past have said, I'm not even going to look at these, which is honestly illegal. They have to present any offer, uh, according to the, the code, that realtors have agreed to. They legally have to present any offers to their seller clients that come across their table. But obviously, some of them don't like it for whatever reason. I, I don't know why. Um, I think it perhaps because they're lazy and they don't want to do the extra work. Um, but some sellers don't like it as well because it, it is extra work, extra calculation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something to keep in mind. I usually advise my clients, hey, if we're talking about a big difference, if we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars uh, that you're willing to go over list price, and we're not sure, you know, what the other offers are, maybe maybe we know that there's like two other offers, and and we're not sure if those other two offers went tens of thousands of dollars above the list price, then an escalation clause is a good option. If there's like ten offers on the property, it's probably best to avoid the escalation clause. And just lead with your best foot forward, whatever that number is, whatever your top number is, whatever whatever you really want that property for, to, to lead with that. So there's a lot of different things to consider there. Um, and of course, if you guys have any questions, let me know. Uh, for a lot of you that are listening to this, I'm sure you've already been through this with me um, if you're uh, a current or past buyer client of mine. All right. Um, so that's the price. Earnest money and contingencies. All right. Let's talk about this. Earnest money, uh, of course, is the money that you put forward with your ratified contract that's held by the closing attorney, and that goes towards your purchase price at the end, uh, to, you know, towards your down payment or towards your uh, closing costs, whatever the case may be. Our standard earnest money deposit um, in in this area, at least, is basically 1% of the purchase price. So uh, on a $300,000 home, that would be $3,000. Now, the earnest money is basically your uh, good faith. You're, you're, you as a buyer saying, hey, I have 
money that I'm willing to to have a third party hold to show that I have skin in the game, that I'm invested in purchasing this property. Um, but you can get that earnest money back based on the contingencies. So, so your earnest money and the contingencies are kind of tied at the hip. They're connected at the hip here. Um, one way that you can improve your offer, make your offer more attractive, is by offering higher, more earnest money, higher than 1%, maybe 2%, or maybe somewhere in between the two. That is obviously um, going to be eye-catching to the seller. Most of the offers are going to have closer to, to 1%. So if you lead with double that, it's going to be like, oh, okay, they have more skin in the game. But if you have a gazillion ways where you can get out of the contract and get that earnest money back, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, Judges in our area, if, if you ever have a... Um, an earnest money dispute. Judges, I've heard, frequently side with buyers. Um, also, uh, you know, it's disadvantageous to a seller to hold up the sale of their home to dispute over earnest money. So, at the end of the day, buyers already have a lot of uh, things working in their favor to get their earnest money back. Uh, so, tightening up the contingencies is an important part of making that earnest money actually mean something. Um, and of course, your contingencies are the things that allow you to get that earnest money back potentially. So there's a financing contingency, an appraisal contingency. Again, I'm, I'm talking about Form 310, South Carolina uh, Association of Realtors Form 310. This is our standard contract form. It has a financing contingency and an appraisal contingency, two separate ones. It has an inspection contingency. That's not really what it's called, but... But roughly speaking, it has that. And then um, a CL100 contingency. Um, there are a few other things in there as well that, that you could technically count as contingencies. But those, those are the big ones. All right. So let's talk about the financing contingency. Uh, how do we make a financing contingency more attractive? Well, the most attractive way is to not have one. Um, but that's only if you are a cash buyer. Obviously, if you are... Um, financing the home in any way, uh, you have to have that. You have to have that. Now, I did run into a situation recently where um, it was like we had someone that was buying a home cash, and the cash was going to come from the proceeds of their home that they were selling, and that home hadn't sold yet. And to make the offer as attractive as possible, we, we didn't have a financing contingency because they were buying it cash. But we also didn't have proof of funds because it was based on the home sale contingency. Um, and so we, we also, in order to make the offer really attractive, we also didn't put a home sale contingency in there as well. And what that meant is that if the uh, offer fell through for basically for any reason, like let's say that the um, let's say that the uh, home that my client was selling did not sell, and then they didn't have the cash to buy this next home. They would be forfeiting their earnest money, and they put forward quite a bit of earnest money. Um, so that's kind of a backwards way of doing it. Which, by the way, the agent had no idea. I had to explain to her so many times what we were doing, and she had no idea. So some of these things sometimes um, simple, uh, simpler is better. Um, and sometimes you have there is a little bit of back and forth with the agent to make sure the agent understands 
uh, how you're structuring these deals creatively in order to to win uh, these uh, bidding war types of situations. So I have to feel this out quite a bit when I'm uh, when I'm negotiating with the agents. Um, but obviously, cash is king. If if you can make a cash offer and very few contingencies, that is going to be uh, a very good offer. By the way, if you're doing an escalation clause, you can and and it's a cash offer, one thing that you can do, because cash is so much cleaner, is say, hey, this escalation clause only pertains to other cash offers. Now, the seller may decide that they want to accept a higher financed offer. I've seen that happen before, where they're just like, you know what, price is more important to me. Um, I'm willing to, uh, I'm willing to go ahead and uh, you know, accept the financed offer with an appraisal contingency, et cetera, et cetera, because I just want more money. So, um, so that does happen, but oftentimes a lot of sellers like the security of cash versus a financed offer. Um, now most people don't have cash, so they have to finance it. So what then can you do? Well, um, understand that a higher down payment looks better. And in the offer and contract itself, it says how much down payment you're, you're putting forward. We really need to make it to where it's kind of like the lowest down payment you plan to make. So maybe you plan to do 10%, but you might have to do 5% for a variety of reasons, then then we need to put that it's going to be a 5% down payment. Because otherwise, if you change things, the seller has to sign off on that. We don't want the seller to have to, to sign off on that. That's my opinion. There's different ways of approaching that, but I think that that's the best way of doing that, in my opinion. Um, additionally, um, if you have a better loan that you're doing, that looks better as well. So a conventional loan uh, is going to look better than, you know, an FHA loan, for instance, um, or a USDA loan, um, or a VA loan. And, and some people prefer, uh, for whatever reason, there's some people that don't like VA loans. VA loans are, in my opinion, a great program. Um, some agents don't like them. They've had bad experiences with them. Uh, and so that that's a consideration as well. Um, so... The financing contingency, you can make it stronger based on what loan you're getting, based on what your down payment is. Oftentimes, people are a little bit constricted. They don't really have choices of the matter. They're either like, hey, I can only do FHA and I can only do 3.5% down. Um, well, then it is what it is. We just, have to, we just have to live with that. But if you have flexibility, if you can put more down, um, if you can opt for a stronger loan program, then that's even better. What about the appraisal contingency? Even though the appraisal and, and the financing are also tied to the HIP, um, they are two separate contingencies. And that's because your financing could fall through uh, for a variety of reasons. Let's say that person loses their job and it's not due to any fault of their own. They get laid off. Now they can't get financing. Now they can back out of the contract on the basis of their financing contingency and get their earnest money back. But let's say that they can get financing, that doomsday scenario doesn't happen, but the appraisal comes in low and you have an appraisal contingency. Um, now the, the buyer has options. The buyer can back out on the basis of the low appraisal. The buyer can renegotiate with the seller in order to try to get the purchase price down. Or the buyer can just bring more money to the closing table in order to, to bridge the gap uh, between the appraised price and the contract price. Um, 
what's happening now is a lot of in these bidding war situations we're seeing a lot of creative things happening when it comes to the appraisal contingency some people are waiving appraisal contingencies altogether and then some people are are also doing these things where it's like well we can't risk ourselves to entirely waiving the appraisal contingency but we're willing to say if the appraisal comes in ten thousand dollars low or twenty thousand dollars low we'll bring that money to the closing table so so how would that work that would work let's say that you've got a uh you're purchasing a home for three hundred thousand dollars that's that's what the contract price is and you're you're bringing five percent down all right let's just say that that's fifteen thousand dollars that you're bringing down let's say that the home appraises for two hundred ninety thousand, so ten thousand dollars below what you're under contract for that buyer in order to bridge that gap would have to bring the ten thousand dollar shortfall so they'd have to bring ten thousand dollars to closing and then in addition to that five percent of two hundred ninety thousand which is fourteen thousand five hundred so then that comes out to twenty four thousand five hundred dollars so you're you're before you were planning to bring $15,000 down, now you're having to bring $24,500 down in order to make it work. Um, and then you also have closing costs on top of that, of course, don't forget. Um, so there are some ways to make the appraisal contingency more attractive to sellers. Obviously, an offer that doesn't have that contingency is a really strong offer because guess what? As prices keep going up and up and up, Sometimes it can be hard for appraisers to justify it. And so we do see some low appraisals. I haven't seen any recently. Thank goodness. I have not seen any low appraisals recently, but I've seen plenty of them in my career. And I'm sure at some point this year, I will see a low appraisal. It's bound to happen. Um, But again, if you're in a position where you can waive it, then that makes your offer so much stronger because then that's one less thing the seller has to worry about. The seller is like, oh man, I don't see how this home is worth more than three fifteen, but I'm getting offers at three thirty, three forty. Well, if they get a, an offer for three thirty without an appraisal contingency and an offer at three forty with an appraisal contingency, they should probably accept the offer at three thirty without. If I were the listing agent and I'm like, hey, I can't justify this price. I'm looking at the comps. It doesn't make sense. Um, I'm afraid that an appraiser is going to struggle with this. Take the lower offer. The lower offer is going to offer more security. It's a it's a bird in hand type of thing rather than rolling the dice and then running into and running into trouble later. The issue with waiving the appraisal contingency, of course, is that if it comes in low and you don't have enough money to make that up, now you're uh, now you're in trouble. You know, um, you can plead with the seller, hey, please come down on the price, but the seller doesn't have to, and they're probably not going to. They're probably just going to go back to one of the other offers that they had and say, hey, are you still on the market? Uh, This one is coming back up for sale. And then at that point, because you waived that contingency, now you're giving up your earnest money. You're forfeiting your earnest money because the appraisal uh, came in low. And so I usually only recommend waiving it in two instances. One is when you as a buyer, you have more than adequate cash to make up uh, whatever difference we anticipate that there might be between the appraisal and the contract price. And that's something that I look at. I look at the comps and I analyze all of that. And I kind of come up with you know, a worst case scenario of like, okay, here's, here's in the worst case what I, what I think will happen um, as far as the appraisal coming in low. 
If you, if you as a buyer have plenty of cash to make that up, no big deal. No big deal. Uh, we can waive the appraisal contingency if you're comfortable with that. Um, the other one is just, um, and and this is a little bit more rare, but we have this happen sometimes. Um, if, if the buyer doesn't have as much money, maybe it has just a little bit of money to make up a small shortfall in the appraisal, but we're just very confident that it's going to appraise at or very close to the contract price. Mo- understand, most appraisers, they don't want to get the blowback of an appraisal coming uh, coming in low. They don't, they don't want that. Um, they know they're going to get called immediately, probably by both agents. They know that that uh, people are going to be angry, that they're going to be asking for revisions, that all sorts of things are, are going to come into play. So a lot of appraisers, they're really incentivized to, to make their appraisal at the contract price. Um, and so if we have the data to justify it, if we have good comps that are like, okay, yes, this almost certainly will appraise at the contract price. And if it doesn't, it should be very close to it. Um, and you have enough money to make it up if it's close to it. There you go. That's a good opportunity to waive it. Otherwise, your best bet is either to keep the appraisal contingency, which is just going to make your offer lower, or say, hey, we're willing to bridge the gap between the contract price and a low appraisal price up to $10,000 or up to $15,000. Again, if you have that money in addition to your down payment and closing costs, um, that just protects you. If the appraisal comes in $20,000 too low, then you have the the option at that point that you can back out and get your earnest money back at that point or, or perhaps to renegotiate with the seller. Maybe the seller is willing to split the difference or something like that. Um, I, w- I will say one thing. If you're like, hey, uh, we only have, we, we can't do uh, much, but we have like an extra $5,000 at play here to make up, you know, for a low appraisal. Should we write that in? I, I would say not because that just sounds weak. That sounds like you're, you don't have a whole lot of money. You're cash poor. I'm not saying that you're cash poor. It just sounds like it. Now you're putting, you know, the ideas in the seller's mind, potentially, they're looking at this offer and they're like, what, they can only make up a $5,000 difference between the contract and the appraisal price? That doesn't sound like, and, and they're only putting three and a half percent down. That doesn't sound like they have a whole lot of money. Um, I, I'm not so sure about that. Um, I would prefer it to be at least $10,000 that you have that you can put towards bridging that uh, appraisal shortfall gap. Um, in order to write that in. I feel like that at that point, you start to look more serious as a buyer, and that inspires more confidence to the seller. So that's the appraisal contingency. All right, let's go on to inspections. There's not really an inspection contingency in um, in Form 310, uh, but this is what we spent that episode, I think I said 26, uh, where we talked about the Greenville contract, or this, technically it's the SCR, South Carolina Realtor Association contract. Um, it has a section, section eight, where you have three check boxes, as is repair procedure or due diligence. And I did not say those in the order that they appear on the, on the contract form. Um, but those are the three options, as is repair procedure, due diligence. Obviously, the strongest out of all of them is the as-is one, but that's there's an important distinction to be made 
about when you're purchasing a property as is, okay? The way it's written in that contract form is that as is, if you check that box, what you're saying is that you cannot get your earnest money back on the condi- on based on the condition of the property for any reason, for any reason based on the condition of the property. You can inspect, but if you find something major um, and you decide at that point, um, hey, I want to back out because I found something crazy in here, um, you know, major structural issues, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're you're at that point. Um, technically, the the seller can take your earnest money in order for you to back out. And so um, that's something. Uh, th- that's an extreme uh, maneuver. Now that obviously makes your offer really strong. If you're saying, "Hey, I'm I'm buying this as is. I am. I don't care what the condition of the property is. I'm confident in it." I'm willing to purchase it as is. Um, yeah, that that makes your offer super strong, um, and that's an offer that most sellers are going to be really excited about. Although I had one recently where we did it as is and it wasn't accepted um, because apparently they just got some crazy other offers out there. Um, but I only recommend going that route because that that's really risky, and I, I don't like risk. I really don't. Um, I only recommend going the as-is route if if you are really confident the home is in very good condition. Maybe it's a newer home. Maybe you can just tell it's been kept up with really well. Um, it's in real good condition. Or um, you're a buyer that has a, a lot of money in the bank that you can put towards repairs and you just really love the house and and you're willing to to take the risk. It's an acceptable level of risk. And that's what we're that's what we're evaluating here. How much risk is there going the as-is route? Um, it, again, with a newer home, uh, there's not as much risk. With a home that has been kept in very good condition, there's not as much risk. Um, in order to try to, to get a full idea of what the situation is with a home, I always recommend to my clients, and, and I do this when, when I'm showing the houses, let's look at the roof. Let's see, what condition is that roof in? Let's look at the AC units. Let's try to to try to figure out how old they are. A lot of sellers they'll put ages of the AC conditions on their seller's disclosure that are flat out wrong. So you need to look at that yourself. Look in the crawl space if there is one. How does the crawl space look? Um, there's all sorts of different things to look at that will help you to uh, understand the major systems of the home, not just the interior condition, but also all these other things. And then if you look at all those other things and you're still confident, you know, the the roof looks new and in good shape, the ACs are in newer condition, et cetera, et cetera, um, now that can give you confidence with being a little bit more aggressive, maybe even as aggressive as going as is uh, in terms of your offer. However, there are the two other options, which are the repair procedure option and the due diligence option. Due diligence is the simplest one, and again, I, I discussed this way back in that earlier episode, so I'm not going to get too far in the weeds, but due diligence means you can back out for any reason. Well, that's not a, an option that a lot of uh, sellers want to see. They don't want to give buyers that much liberty. But the repair procedure option is kind of clunky because that forces sellers to do repairs, and um, 
And, and that's just the way that whole thing is structured is that you're doing inspections, you're asking for repairs, and then the seller has to do those repairs. So let's say you have a situation where a seller is wanting to sell a house as is, but you as the buyer are not willing to, to uh, make an offer with no ability to back out on the basis of the condition of the property. You really only have one option, and that is to go the due diligence route and you can modify it and, and initial, you know, make modifications and initial the language to say that you're you're not going to ask for repairs. You're going to purchase it as is. I ran into this recently where that was a possibility. I went to the listing agent to ask, hey, what would your client prefer? Would your client prefer the due diligence route or would your client prefer to make repairs and for us to go the repair procedure route? And he was like, yeah, they they would just prefer to to do the repair procedure rather than giving buyers all that liberty to back out. Okay, done deal. Um, none of these options are great. Um, I feel like that's one of the biggest shortfalls of, of the contract form that we use, even though they modified it extensively recently. Um, but it is what it is. This is what we have to deal with. And so, um, again, this is all based on... Uh, what the buyer is comfortable with, what the seller is comfortable with, and trying to find the best fit for all the parties. Uh, last but not least, there is, and this is, even though you would think this is a part of the inspection um, contingency area, it's not, which is a CL100 contingency, and that is um, what y- you might have heard in other areas referred to as a termite letter or wood-destroying organisms uh, letter, whatever you want to call it. We call it the CL100. And it's when uh, they look at, especially if it's a crawl space house, where an inspector, uh, specifically a pest inspector, uh, for instance, Terminix would be an example uh, that might come to mind, um, goes in the crawl space or the basement or whatever the foundation of the home is and looks for uh, termites, potential uh, current infestation, past infestations, damage, uh, mold, fungus, powder post beetles, anything that would destroy, uh, that would be a wood-destroying organism down there. Um, Now, this is a separate contingency from the inspection one, as I've already said. And so this becomes kind of interesting. I think it's a separate contingency because we have uh, a lot of moisture and a lot of termites uh, down here. So it's like they broke it out into its own thing. Uh, but let's say, for instance, that um, you make the offer as is, um, but you still want to, to check for termites and moisture. That's still an, uh, an important detail to you, which I can fully understand if it would be. You do have that option, and then even though you can't back out on the basis of the condition of the home, if there is an active infestation of termites or standing water or something that causes, or, or mold, something that causes the CL100 to fail, now at that point, um, you as the buyer can back out uh, You know, if the seller won't remedy those things. Um, and, and so that is an option. If you go the due diligence route, uh, as which again that gives you the ability to back out for any reason. Really, you don't need to have the CL100 contingency at all because you can just do that during your due diligence period. 
By the way, some lenders require the CL100. So I actually, I had an offer recently um, on a listing that was as is, but had the CL100 contingency in there because the lender required that. So that's just something to keep in mind as well. Different lenders have different requirements uh, when it comes to that. Uh, but yeah, if you're going the due diligence route, there's really no point in even having that contingency. Just knock it out during your due diligence period as long as it's done within 30 days prior to closing because that's what most lenders want. Some are a little bit more flexible on that, but a lot of them want it to be done uh, no later than 30 days prior to closing. Um, if you're doing a repair procedure, you might as well just go ahead and, and include that CO100 contingency in there anyway because you're already inspecting for other things. You might as well inspect for termites and moisture, which are probably going to be a bigger deal than anything that's revealed inside the home. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So there aren't very many instances in which I think you should waive the the CL100. Again, um, if it's you, you got to look at the at the risk, right? Let's say that this is a home that's just a couple of years old and it's on a slab foundation and all of that. You probably don't have you probably have a uh, a very low likelihood of there being termites or moisture issues. So at that point, it, it might be an acceptable risk. Um, for a home that's on a crawl space or has a big basement or whatever, um, I'm very leery uh, of waiving the CL100 contingency. Again, if you, if you have enough money that it's like, you know what, I just want to get this house and I'm willing to give up that earnest money, that that's kind of overshadows all of this. If you're willing to surrender your earnest money, if you if you have enough money in the bank that's like, you know what, that $3,000 or $5,000 or whatever, um, I feel like this is an acceptable risk. And if I lose that money, that hurts. I don't like that, but it's okay. It's okay if I lose that. We'll just keep moving. Um, then that gives you the most amount of flexibility. Then you can waive as many of these as as uh, as many of these contingencies as you want because you're willing to uh, to forfeit that earnest money. Again, um, I don't want that to happen, so I always discuss that with my buyer clients as much as possible. But let's say that you're in a situation where uh, you're just really having a hard time finding a home and you find the perfect home. You might, and, and there's multiple offers, of course, because there always is on the perfect home. Um, you might need to go in, uh, you know, strong with your offer. And if you have the ability to uh, to uh, take that risk and to take any of these risks, you you need to consider that. That needs to be something that you keep in mind. And so that's something that I talk through with all of my buyer clients and make sure that they understand, okay, here is the risk. Here is what could happen in this situation? Here's what I'm concerned about. Here's what I'm not concerned about. And we had that discussion. And through that process, we try to craft the best possible offer that gives you the best chance at winning uh, in the bidding war without you losing sleep at night. And that's that's my metric. I'll, I'll talk to my clients a lot about this. I'll say, what would cause you to lose sleep? Would you lose more sleep if you submitted this offer with you know with this higher price and none of these contingencies are you gonna say oh man I'm, I'm really putting myself out there um, or would you lose sleep if you lost out on the home because you didn't do that um, that gut feeling at the end of the day is really really important because even if it's irrational it's there 
and you don't want to buy a house uh, and you don't want to go through a process where that is just lingering, where you just have a nasty feeling the entire time. Uh, but also, you don't want to to not go in strong enough, lose out on the house that you really love, and then uh, that then lingers for the rest of time where it's like every house that comes on the market, you're like, you know what? I don't like this one as much. I like the other one. I wish I had gotten the other one. Um, and so you need to, to take all of that into consideration. Okay. I think that you guys are now experts on all of these contingencies, how to win the bidding war. Um, hopefully, I am the one helping you win these bidding wars. And all of my contact information is in the show notes if you want to reach out to me for any reason. I love hearing from you guys. And uh, also, as always, please make sure you subscribe that you don't miss any future episodes. Leave a rating and a review if you haven't done that. And until next time, happy bidding. Happy bidding.